All right. Go ahead and get started this morning. Um, just as a kind of a review, last week we really looked in depth into the sin of pride as the mother of all sin. Um, and I pray that the effect that that's had on us this week is that we've just been introspective and looked in our own self and, and seen those places where maybe pride is running wild in our lives and maybe we've um, had a chance to repent of those things. I know in my life I've seen that I've been doing that this week. It's helped me to meditate upon that. Um, this, w- this week we're kind of going to look on what would be considered a an extremely hard truth um, that uh, that I think for us is something that motivates us to share the gospel, but for those in the world should be a call to repent, and that is it can be too late to repent. Um, we know that uh, because we know who God is and that he is holy and that he is just and he is good and that he hates sin, that we know that there's not going to be standing at the judgment seat of Christ and him being like, ah, never mind, you get to go in. We know that's not, a, that's not the case. So there's definitely a time when it's too late to repent. Um, and I kind of wanted to approach it a little, a, a little differently. I don't think, I know for, for us who are in Christ, it's never too late to repent because we are in Christ and we know that we are assured and we are held in his hand and nothing can pluck us from his hand, but... I think it's it's a way to help us to see um, maybe it's there's a time when it's time to repent. So um, many times in my life, I think what I found, um, if I was an outside in looking at myself, I think in times when I had fallen into a sinful state, a sinfulness in my life as a Christian, um, I think that I kind of approached that situation as feeling as if I deserve a second chance. Like, I deserve this, you know. Um, when really what I should have been is anguished over my sin and and its consequences, and thus I should have repented. Um, and generally that feeling of I deserve a second chance leads you to the road where eventually you're going to know, you know you're going to have to repent. Um but that anguish for sin is a fuel to repentance. It is, it is, it is meant to, to point us to that uh, repentance in our lives. In Jeremiah 14, what we begin to see is we see that Judah is now in this position. They are in the position. They have uh, repeatedly had the opportunity for repentance. We know God has called them, called them, called them. Repeatedly throughout their history, God has called them to repent. And what we see is um, that even though they've been warned, they have ignored the prophets. And they have continued on their own way. And uh, I think kind of the way the wording that Stephen Smith describes it in is helpful. He said it's like baked on sin that's not easily removed. Um, we all know that the hardest dish to wash is the one that's been in the oven with the stuff on it because it's been baked on, right? And that is the situation they're in. They have baked on sin because they've complete, com- constantly went back into those same things. Um, and they've 
They've just continued and continued and continued without repentance, without true repentance, and now uh, they even have a sense of entitlement about it, you know, um, as if they deserve a second chance. And God, I believe, shows us in this uh, set of verses that he's grown tired of that with them. And so I wanted to start by reading verse 10, 11, and 12 just to give you an idea of where God's at at this point. It says, Thus says the Lord to this people, Even so they have loved to wander, they have not kept their feet in check. Therefore the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and call their sins to account. So the Lord said to me, Do not pray for the welfare of this people. When they fast, I'm not going to listen to their cry. And when they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I'm not going to accept them. Rather, I'm going to make an end of them by the sword, famine, and pestilence. So God basically is to that point that we all get to his parents, right? When you're done. When it's, it's time for the whooping, right? You know, you, you give a little grace and then it's time for the whooping. And God is at that point with his people. In this set of verses, I think there's a pattern that we need to see uh, as well. That pattern is sad. Thank goodness it's not our pattern. It's not a pattern for us. It's a pattern for this people. The people plea, and God refuses. That happens twice in these set of verses. So let's look at the context of it first. In verses 1 through 6, um, we see the point that Judah has gotten to and why this is even happening in the first place. It's happening because there's a drought in the land. Um, it's ravaging Judah. They're, they, they're crying for help because there's no water. Uh, the crops aren't growing. Uh, animals are even suffering, and it's just a bad situation for them. So, of course, at this point, they begin to cry out to God. Uh, and this is, th this drought... God kind of makes plain that this drought is actually a direct uh, result and consequence of their sinfulness. That's why the drought's even there at the time. So they're thirsty and can't be satisfied. And it drew a parallel in my mind to the fact that, um, you know, they don't have Christ. We have Christ. And when we're thirsty... He gives us living water, and we will never thirst again, right? And that is the, the major difference here. They're thirsty, and they'll never be satisfied. And we are satisfied in Christ because he has given us that water. This drought's not just a metaphor, though. It's real. It's, 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 it's very real suffering that they're going through in their, in their, in their region. But I want to give three points that kind of point to this interaction between, really between God and Judah, through Jeremiah, of course, but through God, to God and Judah. The first one is, uh, we see a very confusing confession. And God responds to that confusing confession. Uh, he responds to pretense in prayer. So, this is one of those moments of a plea and a refusal in verses 7 through 12. Um, I'm going to read uh, verses 7 through 9 so you can hear how Judah sounds. 
Although our iniquities testify against us, O Lord, act for your name's sake. Truly our apostasies have been many. We have sinned against you. O hope of Israel, its Savior in time of distress, why are you like a stranger in the land or like a traveler who has pitched his tent for the night? Why are you like a man dismayed, like a mighty man who cannot save? Yet you are in our midst, O Lord. We are called by your name. Do not forsake us. That's a very interesting plea coming from them, right? Because they've constantly refused the warnings Jeremiah gave to turn from this way, to turn from their idols, to turn from these things. And now they're going through something, and what's the first thing they want to do? It seems like they want to remind God, Hey, remember us? You like us. We're called by your name. We deserve a second chance. And... They've ignored God for their idols. The physical pressure has somewhat exposed for them a spiritual issue. And I know in my own life, that's happened to me too many times to count. But notice how they end their plea. This is so interesting. Yet you are in our midst, O Lord, and we are called by your name. Do not forsake us. The entire plea seems to be disingenuous because really of that last statement. Because Judah has been sinful for so long, yet God has been so patient. And he has been present. He has been their, their God, and they have been his people, right? Yet... They've turned to other idols. They've, they've turned to their sinful ways. And yet, it still seems that he's been so patient. And now, that they've gotten to this point, after many, many warnings, they've decided to take for granted this patience. And they're really taking, uh, uh, taking it for granted to the extreme. Because they were warned when things were good. And now that things are hard, now they want to repent. So, God has a, the answer, and that, that's verse 10 through 12 that we just read. It's a refusal. We've read it already, but God is pretty clear in his answer. Listen to this. I mean, this, I don't think this could be any clearer. In verses 11 and 12, this, this statement that God makes, he says, Do not pray for the welfare of this people. When they fast, I'm not going to listen to their cry. That's hard. That's really hard. And that is the point he's at. He's warned and warned and warned, and now it's, it's over. It's, it's too late. What, is that, what should that bring to our hearts? That one day, those in, in this world that have been warned, it's going to be too late one day. And that should honestly spur us to want to share that gospel even more, to give them the chance to turn, just as God does to this people Judah. So then... We go to another movement that kind of almost interjects itself into this, but I think it's a, piece, a, a very important piece of the whole situation and why this interaction is even happening in the first place, and that's that we see a confusing message. And we see God here come in condemning lying preachers in verses 13 through 18. Listen to verses 13 and 14. 
But, ah, Lord, I said, look, the prophets are telling them, you will not see the sword, nor will you have famine, but I will give you lasting peace in this place. Then the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying falsehood in my name. I have neither sent them, nor commanded them, nor spoken to them. They are prophesying to you a false vision, divination, futility, and the deception of their own minds. Make no mistake. God doesn't abide those who lie and say he said it. Because you're making God into a liar. I can't tell you how many times in my experience, and I'm glad that for a lot of you that wasn't your experience, but a lot of times in my experience I'd be told, God said he's going to do this, 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 and this, and I would sit around and wait for God to do this, 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 and this, and he wouldn't do a single bit of it. Why? Because he never said that. And God doesn't abide that. God makes it clear to Jeremiah that these liars and false prophets are going to face the same fate as the nation. They're going to be taken just as the nation is. They're going to be punished and, and disciplined just as this nation is. And God is going to enforce his judgment on them. Make no mistake, it's not, it's not some kind of coincidence that Babylon's coming when they come. He's sending them. It's God's judgment upon this people. Now, here's the thing. These men, these so-called prophets, were not sent by God. And I think we see a distinct parallel in the modern church culture. The modern church culture, there's people who, um, they put the word prophet before their name. There's people who put apostle before their name and say that God sent them and told them this. God said, if you give this, he's going to do this. Well, they're standing on dangerous ground because God didn't say that. And uh, our modern church culture, I wish we'd get out of thinking that we need more said to us than what it says here. You know, that's, some, some may like it. I'm, that's why I'm not a big fan of Jesus Calling because the whole reason she wrote Jesus Calling is because she said, I needed more than just what the Bible told me. If you need more than just what the Bible tells you, to, to know what God is saying to you, you're in trouble. Because this is what he gave us. This is his revealed word directly to us. And that's what we trust. So we end on a third point, another confusing confession from this people. And because of this, God responds to procrastination and repentance. We see the plea in verses 19 through 22. In verse 21, I think it's interesting that they begin to invoke, invoke the name of God. Listen to this. It says, Do not despise us for your own name's sake. Do not disgrace the throne of your glory. Remember and do not annul your covenant with us. Now, the name that they're invoking is a holy and sacred name. A holy name that they have blasphemed and turned other gods from. And they call to that holy and sacred name. For your own namesake, help us. Only it's too late. 
And in fact, they even, in verse 22, acknowledge that God is sovereign over all of it. They know Him. They know His name, Yahweh, the one true God, right? Yet, they have never turned until it was tough on them. So in chapter 15, verses 1 through 9, we see a serious refusal from God. Because make no mistake, and I think this is a good pattern for us, the Christian, in looking at, at repentance, confession is the right prayer. God's name is the right motivation for His namesake, for His glory. And that only God can do it, can forgive and turn things, is definitely the right hope. And that's something we take with us here, right? We know this is true. They've done this thing, but the problem that is, it's too late. The drought is the first judgment because they have not turned. And God knew they weren't going to turn. Jeremiah was told clearly by God, they're not going to turn. Warn them, but don't pray for them because they're not going to turn. So what we see here is that repentance here is too late. And they're, like I said, with, with a world that doesn't know Christ, there's a point when repentance is too late. When you draw your last breath, it's too late. So for Judah, four kinds of judgment await. There's going to be drought, pestilence, war, slavery. But there were warnings repeatedly before. And now we're here. In this case, the saying that is my least favorite saying in the world is absolutely true for Judah. It is what it is. The judgment's here, and that's what it's going to be. Judah, though, isn't really the only audience here. And this, this, this part, this portion, this time period of Judah is not the only um, audience for the, these words. What we see is, we see that Israel is also going to be taken as well. So Judah and Israel are going to be taken. So those words are for them. The Babylonians are going to take them. Assyria is then going to take over Babylon. Then Persia is going to take over Assyria. And by God's providential hand, there will come a day when King Darius would return them to their land. A Persian king. But see, the other audience as well for this is those who get to return. They have this in their hands. They know the truth. They know what led up to the captivity. And they have a warning when they return. Follow God and not idols. So, I think for our points of application, I think we have some that we could really look at and, and really help us in our lives and, and in the lives of our interactions with others. I noticed uh, 
our discussion on uh, Wednesday night about last week's sermon, um, it really turned to kind of that work of the gospel being shared and starting with knowing the gospel ourselves and then sharing the gospel with our families and then our friends and, and, and even co-workers and, you know, those things, those, those, those ways that the gospel moves through people, right? So I think it's going to help us, these points of application will help us in that. The first uh, point of application is that God takes sin seriously. He's going to punish sin, and some will be given over to their sin. We know that clearly from Romans. It tells us that. And we, as a people, don't know when it's too late because we don't know the moment of our last breath or the last breath of any of, our, of the people around us. So knowing that in mind, our hope is to re repent and turn to Christ. He's our only hope. And we preach that, to repent, turn to Christ. He is your only hope. God disciplines the sinful believer in ways that don't cast them out of his presence, right? But we see things in our lives happen, and we see the, the, the need for discipline in our own lives. And really, one of the main disciplines we have is through the Holy Spirit convicting our hearts. So we see that. And Christ himself is the one who experienced God's hatred for sin the worst because he took the wrath upon the tree. So now what we see is that his wrath will be poured out either on you in hell or on Christ in your place. And that is our hope. Now, the second one is, that, is this. God rejects lying preachers. He rejects them for one simple reason that we learned several, several weeks ago in John. He rejects lying preachers because he loves his sheep. John 10.10, 10, you may know this by heart. Maybe I'm fixing to tell you something you don't know. Maybe I'm fixing to tell you something you absolutely know. John 10.10 10 says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now many would say that the thief there is the devil. Um, if we look at the context of this, he talks about being the good shepherd. He talks about his, 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 his sheep being shepherded by the truth and that there are those who would come in and spread a lie. The thief here is the false teacher trying to give a false gospel because that only leads one place, destruction. And so what we see is that even Christ is very clear. He doesn't abide lying teachers. That's why he was so harsh with, with, with the uh, Pharisees. He was so harsh with them because what they were doing was leading his sheep in a different direction than where they were supposed to go. So I think, you know, clearly, you know, we're called to follow, you know, Christ first. And the preachers that we follow should be teaching us the truth, teaching us what the Bible says, not what they think 
or not some fun new idea that's going to revolutionize church. Church was revolutionized by men like Peter and Paul and John. They revolutionized the church, and they changed the world. Thirdly, judgment on others is a warning for us. We must be wise, and we must learn from others' mistakes, and I think that's a foundational pr uh, principle in learning anything in the Old Testament. That the, the judgments that we see, they're a warning to our own hearts, and that's how we would study that. That thing that, and we see, of course, also grace of God extended past the point of all tolerance throughout the Old Testament. And that's what we get most of the time, right? So I think that's 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 a help for us to, as we learn the Old Testament, to see those things, see those judgments. Says, "Hey, let me examine my own heart." Um, the prayer that I began to pray in my Bible reading is, "Lord, let me see the imperatives, the things that you're commanding here." And let me be quick to follow that because I'm not quick to follow those things most of the time in my life. I'm a human being who does not like to be told what to do. So guess what? It's hard for me to sometimes take those imperatives and those commands and actually apply it to my own life. But it's important that we see those things throughout the Old Testament as well. So um, going forward in Jeremiah, uh, we're probably not going to continue going expositionally, and I'll explain in a second.